Warning, binge mode contains adult content. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> Listen, I can't wait to talk about what big baby Grop is slinging. Oh, my God. But <laughs> a literal tree trunk and a. But hold on, hold on. <laughs> See, that was just a little taste of the kind of content that binge mode provides, the adultness. So if that's not your thing, you should check out any of our other fine wares, like the Ringer NFL Show, a great podcast about the NFL. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why it's a bad thing that Ron has no idea how he turned a dinner plate into a giant mushroom, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. Order has no chance whatsoever of becoming an order. Professor McGonagall got to her feet, too. And in her case, this was a much more impressive move. She towered over Professor Umbridge. Potter? She said in ringing tones. I will assist you to become an aura if it is the last thing I do. If I have to coach you nightly, I will make sure you achieve the required results. The Minister of Magic will never employ Harry Potter, said Umbridge, her voice rising furiously. There may well be a new Minister of Magic by the time Potter is ready to join. Welcome to Binge Mode, Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website! Joining me today, now that he's finished producing a full for extra Ooh. credit. One point? Come on. <laughs> what? I'm going to get one point? That's a full, dude. Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal! Anything for a bonus point because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're more partial to the portable swamp or garroting gas distraction. Mm. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. And also, please rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Mash that follow button on Binge underscore mode aka the underscore and join our facebook group or request to because that's the place for binge mode fans an excellent place to find a carpool to number 93 diagon alley yesterday on binge mode harry potter we explored how the battle within shapes chapters 24 through 28 of order of the phoenix and on today's episode we're diving into chapters 29 through 33 Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge is always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep! On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we levitate a Niffler into Umbridge's office. Yes. They're so cute. So cuddly. They're cute. They just love to steal. They're cute little thieves. Love them. So stick your head into Dolores's fire, because it's time to have a little chat with Creature. Mel, he's got Isaac. He's got Isaac at the place where it's hidden. Heavily winking, big winks. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? But we have a lot of plot to get through, so let's worry about that later. 
For now, it's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in order chapters 29 to 33. We're climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine to plot the Hogwarts Express Choo Choo. Tough break for our guy Isaac there. With Dumbledore gone, mm. DA meetings over, and occlumency lessons abandoned, Harry enters the last stretch of his fifth year with much of his life in flux. Things don't get any smoother when Sirius and Lupin react with horror upon learning that Snape has stopped instructing Harry in Occlumency, nor when McGonagall and Umbridge turn Harry's career advice session into a shouting match, nor especially when Hagrid lets Harry and Hermione in on his big, and I mean big, boy do I mean big, <laughs> secret. He brought back from the mountains his half-brother, the BBG, Big Baby Grop, a 16-foot giant, one of the smaller ones, mm-hmm. and has been keeping him in the forest all year. Shouts to my guy, BBG. That's a big man. As if Harry didn't have enough to worry about, exams come soon enough. And during his final test, he sees a vision, not of an outstanding grade, but of Voldemort torturing Sirius at the Department of Mysteries. He sneaks into Umbridge's office to use her fireplace and learns falsely from Creature, Sirius is out. But Umbridge catches Harry and his friends, and Hermione convinces her that they were trying to contact Dumbledore to tell him the secret Dumbledore's army weapon is ready. She leads Umbridge into the forest, Harry in tow, where the headmistress is abducted by centaurs. And Harry, Hermione, Ron, Neville, Luna, and Ginny prepare to travel to London on the backs of Thestrals to rescue Sirius. Jason. Yeah. Grop's about 16 feet tall, enjoys ripping up 20-foot pine trees. Hermie. And knows us as Bingy. Bingy! And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 29 through 33 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is... Subterfuge. Chapter 29, Career Advice. Harry's trip into the pensive and his ensuing confrontation with Snape rattled him. In times of trouble, Harry has consistently sought the comfort of Ron and Hermione, knowing that they'll guide him and console him, and that even in the moments when they can't, just speaking to them will help vent some of that poison. But Harry is so shaken by what he witnessed and by the occlumency-ending ramifications of what he did that instead of seeking counsel, he's doing the very thing he's so desperately tired of others doing with him. He's withholding the truth. But why haven't you got occlumency lessons anymore, said Hermione, frowning. I've told you, Harry muttered. Snape reckons I can carry on by myself. Now, I've got the basics. When she pushes, asking him if his funny dreams have stopped, he doubles down. Ah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. Sure. Harry's ashamed of what he saw from his father, of the choice that Harry himself made to violate Snape's secrets and what that choice has cost him, jeopardizing the very thing Dumbledore, upon fleeing the school, told him was more important than anything. Do the occlumency. Yes. And he's like, no, I can't anymore? You must promise me, Dumbledore had said. Harry knows he can't make good on that now. But instead of asking Hermione and Ron to help him try, to help him learn, instead of forcing himself to exercise the discipline required to continue on his own, he's hiding. There's no way to hide from exams. Exams are just six weeks away. Hermione has made Harry and Ron... Charming color-coded study schedules. But nothing can distract Harry from his misery. He gratefully seizes on Hermione asking him about Cho, who, quote, looked really miserable too, as a cover for his current state, dwelling privately on what he saw by the lake that day. Quote, he felt as though the memory of it was eating him from the inside. Mm. Trusted loved ones had always told him 
how great his father was. But James appeared to abuse Snape just for fun, just because Sirius said he was bored. And Lupin watched. That's not much better. His mother, at least, had acted kindly. Quote, Yet the memory of the look on her face as she had shouted at James disturbed him quite as much as anything else. How could they have wound up married when Lily clearly loathed James so? Quote, once or twice he even wondered whether James had forced her into it. Think about this. Wow. Remember how Harry, earlier in the book, described leading the DA and mounting a resistance as feeling, quote, as though he were carrying some kind of talisman inside his chest, a glowing secret that supported him. That's what the idea of his parents' love has always been for him. And now that's broken, replaced by toxic doubt that's causing Harry to recede further into himself at a moment when it is more crucial than ever to trust his instincts and maintain his focus. Quote, for nearly five years, the thought of his father had been a source of comfort, of inspiration. Whenever someone had told him he was like James, he had glowed with pride inside. And now, now he felt cold and miserable at the thought of him. One night, alone with his misery at the library, Ginny approaches, hair windswept, Quidditch horror stories, and badly rewrapped packages in hand. It's Easter eggs from Mrs. Weasley, freshly through Umbridge's security screening system. Ginny hands him the chocolate snitch iced egg that Molly made him from the book. Harry looked at it for a moment, then to his horror felt a hard lump rise in his throat. He doesn't understand why the egg has evoked this response in him, but it's clear. He's holding in his hand a symbol of love and family, a palm-sized embodiment of what he's spent his whole life craving and how the pensive memory compromised that tiny kernel of it that he's ever managed to gather. When Ginny tells Harry that he seems really down and then she's sure things would improve if he just talked to Cho, he's like, forget Cho, please. It's not Cho I want to talk to, he says. He glances around to make sure they can't be overheard, then continues. I wish I could talk to Sirius, he says. As hopelessness spreads over Harry at the thought of how hopeless this desire is, takes a bite of the egg, which Ginny then shares. She shares her optimism, too. If this is what Harry needs, there's a way. The thing about growing up with Fred and George, she says, is that you sort of start thinking anything's possible if you've got enough nerve. Harry looks at his future wife and finds his spirit lift, hope rekindled for the first time since Snape cast Harry from his office. From the book, perhaps it was the effects of the chocolate. Lupin had always advised eating some after encounters with Dementors, or simply because he had finally spoken aloud the wish that had been burning inside him for a week, but he felt more hopeful. This is a beautiful moment, not only an essential installment in Harry and Ginny's love story, as the invaluable Zach Cram put it during an episode prep session, she is his chocolate, but yet another reminder that for Harry, speaking aloud always brings peace. Deception can lead him astray. Openness leads him forward. Forward toward... A career? Harry has so much on his mind and his shoulders at all times that it can be very easy to forget that he's still just a fifth-year student with all of the considerations that entails. At the end of the Easter break, pamphlets on various wizarding careers appear in the common room, and a notice goes up on the board about mandatory career advice consultation. Before Harry or the reader can spend too much time grappling with how odd it is to think that being the chosen one can't actually be a full-time, lifelong profession for Harry. Mm -hmm. Fred and George interrupt our trio's discussion of curse-breaking for Gringotts. Substantial danger-related treasure bonuses? Sign us up. Jeannie, we learn, spoke to the twins about Harry's need to talk to Sirius, a reveal they drop in front of Hermione, who labels Harry's wish ridiculous, <laughs> given Umbridge's current embrace of the Orwellian surveillance state. The twins famously never seen without their dog-eared copy of 1984, aren't fussed. They say it's a simple matter of causing a diversion. 
They took a holiday break from mayhem making. What was the point, we asked ourselves, of disrupting leisure time? But they're back on their bullshit starting tomorrow. Might as well ensure that their next bit of chicanery benefits Harry. And Harry knows just where to go for a chat. Umbridge's office, which she herself told him, is the only fire not being monitored. Hermione's response to this? Are you insane, said Hermione in a hushed voice. Harry doesn't think so. He's thought it through. And regardless, he's Harry, always ready to explain away his recklessness. He'll open the door with a knife Sirius gave him last Christmas. Fred and George say they're planning to act tomorrow, right after lessons, for max impact when everyone's in the corridors, and that they'll, quote, set it off, ominous, in the East Wing, away from Umbridge's office, guaranteeing Harry 20 minutes. It's a sad sign of the times that chatting with his godfather requires as much planning as a bank heist, but that's life in Umbridge's Hogwarts. Harry's restless all day, and Hermione fuels his angst with the near-constant barrage of pleas to think about what you're doing. He's in a miserable mood by the time he arrives in McGonagall's office for his career advice session, a mood that worsens when he realizes Umbridge is there behind him like a creep to observe. McGonagall asks Harry if he's had any thoughts about what he wants to do with his life. Well, I thought of maybe being an Auror, Harry mumbled. McGonagall not unkindly tells Harry he'll need top grades for that. More of a pep talk than a warning. A minimum of five newts and mandatory character and aptitude tests. It's a difficult career path, Potter. They only take the best. In fact, she says no one's joined the program the last three years, which is like, wow. Amazing. Congratulations to Tonks. And also like, how did Ron cheat? (laughs) I mean, I guess if you're like, yeah, I helped bring down Voldemort and I killed a Horcrux, they're like, all right, you're in. I guess. (laughs) And of course, getting into those newt courses for sixth and seventh year means scraping the required owl results. So he needs to seriously step it up in his classes. Umbridge, who has been steadily making her way up the cough decibel scale, (laughs) gives her loudest yet. May I offer you a cough drop, Dolores, (laughs) McGonagall says. Umbridge doesn't need a lozenge, but she does need to insert herself into this situation. I was wondering whether Mr. Potter has quite the temperament for an aura, said Professor Umbridge sweetly. Were you, said Professor McGonagall. And then she immediately (laughs) resumes her talk with Harry as if nothing had happened. Get your transfigurations and potions up and you'll be set. Your charms work is good. Your defense against the dark arts is obviously very advanced. Are you quite sure you would like a cough drop, Dolores? Perhaps some Vicks Vapor Rub, a hit of your albuterol in here, some Dayquil, some Nyquil? No? Then please be quiet. I'm terribly sorry to have to contradict you, Minerva, but as you will see from my note, Harry's been achieving very poor results in his classes with me. I should have made my meaning plainer, said Professor McGonagall, turning at last to look at Umbridge directly in the eyes. He has achieved high marks in all defense against the dark arts tests, set by a competent teacher. Unbelievable. Which includes a Voldemort. <laughs> Listen, Umbridge has nothing but glowing things to say about Man. Quirrell as a she teacher. Just dunked extremely hard. So good. And Dolores Umbridge. An amazing McGonagall moment. There's no subterfuge here. McGonagall is putting it all out on Front Street. She continues speaking to Harry, telling him that order training requires a further three years of study, at which point Umbridge notes that the ministry looks into applicants' criminal records. Quote, which means that this boy has as much chance of becoming an horror as Dumbledore has of ever returning to the school. A very good chance then, McGonagall says. Numbridge stands up. They are just trading barbs here. Potter has no chance whatsoever of becoming an horror. McGonagall stands. She towers over her foe. Potter, she said in ringing tones, I will assist you to become an horror if it is the last thing I do. If I have to coach you nightly, I will make sure you achieve the required results. 
When Umbridge says that Corn will never employ Harry, McGonagall taps into the heart of Umbridge's fear by saying there may well be a new Minister of Magic by the time Potter is ready to join. Umbridge and Fudge have spent all year working to combat the deception that they assume Dumbledore and his legions are engaging in to overthrow him. They're in a state of perpetual paranoia and lunacy that makes McGonagall's next assessment quite apt indeed. You are raving, she says. (laughs) Fearlessly. And then she dismisses Harry. Now, this is an epic scene, in part the product of McGonagall's bone-deep loathing of Umbridge, and in part her ride-or-die ethos again coming to the fore. She is fiercely loyal to Dumbledore, and that means being fiercely loyal to Harry in Hogwarts, making no effort to hide it. This isn't a parlay. This is McGallion's true-life work, and it's worth fighting for openly and proudly. Harry's doubting himself. Umbridge is furious after the career consultation. There's nothing stopping him from talking to Sirius later, so he thinks— from the book, nothing except the thought of taking this sensible course of action made him feel as though a lead weight had dropped into his stomach. Hermione plays her final card. Dumbledore sacrificed himself to keep you in school, Harry. If you get thrown out today, it will have all been for nothing. Recall what Lupin said to Harry in Azkaban when he's discovered with the Marauder's Map. Your parents gave their lives to keep you alive, Harry. A poor way to repay them, gambling their sacrifice for a bag of magic tricks. These aren't petty guilt trips. These are reminders of the stakes, and undeniably... One of the great blessings of Harry's life is he has so many people willing to sacrifice something for him, their jobs, their education, their lives. He elicits that kind of loyalty, that kind of love. But that comes with a cost that is intensely heavy and is at this point weighing Harry down. Sometimes he just wants to be a kid looking for enlightenment, not worrying about the debt he owes other people or how he might let people down. Sometimes he's the one who feels let down. From the book, did he want to be like his father anymore, he thinks to himself. He has to find out. He needs to know. When he hears the diversion going off, he makes his decision and he sets off at a run. Hiding behind a statue in the corridor housing Umbridge's office, he puts on his invisibility cloak and grabs Sirius's knife. He's trying to find out more about Prongs and Padfoot by using the tools for mischief-making that they handed down to him. It is perfect. He enters her office and, using flu powder, calls for Grimald Place. Lupin's sitting at the kitchen table and is stunned to see Harry's head in the fire. Says we'll go get serious. Quote, he went upstairs to look for Creature. He seems to be hiding in the attic again. More like at Narcissa's, as we will learn in time. Mm -hmm. When Sirius enters, he and Lupin both kneel down and they're full of fear. What is wrong that has led Harry to reach out to them in this way? And when Harry says that he wants to talk about his dad, quote, they exchanged a look of great surprise, but Harry did not have time to feel awkward or embarrassed. He launches into his tale. Lupin says he wouldn't want Harry to judge James by what he saw there. Quote, he was only 15. And Harry says, I'm 15. Please judge me only by the best stuff. That's how I would like to be remembered. That's how we would all like to be remembered. Everyone out there, please only remember me for all the good shit I do and none of the bad stuff. Thank you. They explain (laughs) that Snape and James loathed each other from the go. But Harry... This isn't enough for him. He kept messing up his hair, said Harry in a pained voice. And then Sirius and Lupin laugh. It's an interesting response. Yeah, your your dad was a douche. One that surprises (laughs) Harry, but they're full of such affection. I'd forgotten he used to do that, said Sirius affectionately. Was he playing with the snitch, said Lupin eagerly. Yeah, said Harry, (laughs) watching uncomprehendingly as Sirius and Lupin beamed reminiscently. Well, I thought he was a bit of an idiot, Harry says. And they reply, of course, we were all idiots, right? 
they push Harry to try to listen to them. James's head deflated eventually. He and Lily started dating in their seventh year. Sirius says that James was the best friend he ever had and a good person, too. I just never thought, Harry said, I'd feel sorry for Snape. Oh, Snape, how'd he take all this, by the way? When Harry reveals that Snape said he'd never teach him occlumency again, they lose it. Sirius actually says that he's going to come to school to have a word with Snape right now and then starts to stand up. Hinting again at how willing it's great. I love when Lupin's like, shut the fuck up, sit down, (laughs) Jesus Christ. Hinting again here at how willing, even eager Sirius will be to spring to action when Harry needs aid at the ministry. Lupin is apoplectic, reiterating that there is nothing more important than Harry studying occlumency, learning to close his mind. Before they can continue, though, Harry hears approaching sounds and has to abruptly end the conversation. He hides under the cloak just as Filch enters, shouting, Approval for whipping. Approval for whipping. I can do it at last. Good shit, my guy. Exiting and stowing the cloak, Harry heads towards the diversion that masked his subterfuge and finds, like the night of Trelawney sacking what feels like the entire school watching, Umbridge is facing down Fred and George. So, you think it amusing to turn a school corridor into a swamp, do you? Pretty amusing, yeah, said Fred, looking back at her without the slightest sign of fear. Filch's torture erection throbbing for all to see. I've got the form and I've got the whips waiting. Oh, let me do it now. Mr. and Mrs. Martinez will see you now. Shouts to our Billions Shouts fans. Shouts to the Billions heads. Umbridge tells the twins that they're about to find out what happens to wrongdoers in her school, but they have other ideas. You know what, said Fred? I don't think we are. Turns to his twin. George, said Fred, I think we've outgrown full-time education. Yeah, I've been feeling that way myself, said George lightly. Time to test our talents in the real world. Do you reckon, asked Fred. Definitely, said George. And before Umbridge could say a word, they raise their wands. Akio brooms. The twins have spent seven years using their cunning and their guile to break rules and learn more about the castle than maybe anyone but the marauders. They've shared the wealth, not literally with Lee Jordan as they promised, but, you know, figuratively. The wealth of their discoveries. Giving Harry the map, bringing treats to Gryffindor Tower, selling headless hats and other inventions. And they've also, in many ways, largely operated in the shadows. Remember, much of their mischief-making is possible because of literal secret passageways. Mm -hmm. Now, here, there is no more reason to hide that craftiness. No more reason to stay at Hogwarts at all, in fact. Their brooms, one still trailing the iron peg that nailed it to Umbridge's wall, hurtle toward them. Fred and George are icons, not only because of their hilarity, though, certainly that too, Mm -hmm. but also because of their heart, their unapologetic pursuit of what they believe in. They may be an unconventional one, but they are an example to all of us, guided by a desire to protect their loved ones and to pursue their passions fully. They mount their brooms. They tease their new premises at Diagon Alley. Special discounts to Hogwarts students who swear they're going to use our products to get rid of this old bat, they say. They shoot into the air, and Fred turns to the mayhem-causing poltergeist, now at eye level. Give her hell from us, Peeves. Continuing from the book here. And Peeves, whom Harry had never seen take an order from a student before, swept his belled hat from his head and sprang to a salute as Fred and George wheeled about to tumultuous applause from the students below and sped out of the open front doors into the glorious sunset. Just amazing stuff. Chapter 30, Grop. Fred and George's middle finger kiss off and broom ride into the sunset is immediately the stuff of legend. A rallying cry. Inspired by their example, students dream of, quote, doing a Weasley. None actually up and leave school, but a 
good number of them do take up the flag of mayhem and subterfuge in their names. Someone slips a niffler into Umbridge's office. Lee will later learn in a misguided move that leads Umbridge to increase security, which is how she'll later catch Harry when he returns to her fireplace. In the moment, the niffler tears the room apart in search of shiny treasures, the stench of dung bombs. They're so thick in the halls of the castle that the students cast bubblehead charms on themselves. When Dumbledore told students at the end of the last book to remember Cedric, this is not what he had in mind, but still... <laughs> Tis a fitting tribute. Skyving snack boxes are all the rage. No sooner does Umbridge's squat shadow darken the doorway of a classroom than its students begin hemorrhaging blood and spewing fountains of vomit. This kind of guerrilla warfare against an oppressor would be impossible without the tacit support, not just of the student body, but of those technically within the power structure. Mm -hmm. And so it is with the faculty who do everything short of open confrontation, although that is coming, yes. to slow Umbridge and the ministry's plans. They're engaging in the ploy en masse. Harry Shore, for instance, that either McGonagall or Flitwick, if they so wished, could easily vanish the swamp Fred and George conjured on the fifth floor. No doubt. And when he sees Peeves aroused and thriving in this era of mischief, attempting to loosen a chandelier from its moorings, he's sure that McGonagall not only turns a blind eye to it, but is like, it unscrews the other way. <laughs> Screw unscrew it the other way. Amazing. What a time to be Peeves. Yeah. Our friends are discussing these and other events, including... Dear Graham Montague's eternal malaise. Oh my guy, Graham. Graham. Tough, tough times for Graham. <laughs> Lost in limbo, then literally in a toilet for an unknown amount of time. There's also that line about how when Harry gets to the hospital and Madame Pomfrey's just spooning blue liquid into his mouth. <laughs> tough stuff for Graham. They're discussing these events in Charms class when Harry finally comes clean about a bit of long-running scannery of his own. Here it is at long last. It's amazing it took him this it long really to tell is. him this. Just astonishing. He's like, you guys are lying to me, and he hasn't told him this. Ron is upset because he's sure that the MILF will blame him for not doing enough to stop the twins from dropping out of school. Hermione points out that if, as stated, Fred and George have rented shop space in Diagon Alley, then clearly they've been planning their kiss off for some time. What could Ron have done? Yeah, but that's another thing, Ron says. How did they get premises? It's a bit dodgy, isn't it? They'll need loads of galleons to afford the rent on a place in Diagon Alley. She'll want to know what they've been up to to get their hands on that sort of gold. Hmm, Ron, let's see. Who do you know who's got lots of extra gold <laughs> just sitting around, doesn't even know when you pay him back in leprechaun Basic. fake coins, and who also came into even more riches after winning a world-renowned wizarding tournament? Hermione wonders aloud whether the twins could have been engaging in illegal activities with Dung Fletch, which is a really uncharitable assessment of Fred and George. And upon hearing these things, it's time for Harry to speak at last. They got the gold from me, he says. Mm -hmm. I gave them my Triwizard winnings last June. Hermione is horrified, but Ron is hilariously relieved. But this is excellent, he says. It's all your fault, Harry. Mum can't blame me at all. Can I tell her? What a pal. Can't wait to rat out Harry to save his own ass. Though, of course, it's not like Harry offered to buy his silence. It can be had extremely <laughs> cheap. Harry has more secrets, of course, than just providing seed money for Weasley's wizard wheezes. There's the status of his occlumency studies and his steadily intensifying Department of Mysteries visions. Hermione and Ron are Harry's closest, dearest friends, but he's still lying to them about everything here. When Ron and Hermione asks Harry about his conversation with Sirius— 
from the book, he had ended up saying to them truthfully that Sirius wanted Harry to resume occlumency lessons. He had no choice, having also lied to them about the James Field reason he wanted to chat in the first place. And now he needs a cover. Lies, if not exposed, end up with lies of their own, requiring more and more lies in turn to support the original pretense. Hermione refuses to let the subject of occlumency go. You can't tell me you've stopped having funny dreams, Hermione said now, because Ron told me last night you were muttering in your sleep again. Ron tries to apologize for telling Hermione this and then says, you're only muttering a bit, something about just a bit farther. Harry says, I dreamed I was watching you, you lot play Quidditch, which is mean. (laughs) Really mean, Harry. (laughs) I was trying to get you to stretch out a bit farther to grab the quaffle. Actually, Harry again dreamt of the Department of Mysteries just the night before. He walked down the corridor, through the circular room and the room Mm. of lights and the strange clicking into the vast room full of shelves and glass spheres. With each dream, Harry's curiosity, his desire to see what's just a bit farther, grows. Lines are blurring. Voldemort covets something in that room, just a little further in. And now Harry's coveting it, too. Now— Listen, our guy Harry, who we love and support deeply, is not—how do I say this? A deep thinker. He's not a self-reflective kind of guy, (laughs) which is fine. He's 15. Who among us was at 15? Uh, Hermione. Yeah, well, Hermione is advanced in a lot of ways. other people other than Harry. (laughs) Hermione already banged out Vic the Dick and she— Harry is rationalizing his desire by telling himself that in addition to satisfying his own curiosity, discovering what the weapon is would be useful to the war effort. Wasn't his vision of Arthur being attacked useful? Didn't it save Arthur's life? Harry's felt kept in the dark all year, cut off from information, and now he has a pipeline to valuable intel on the enemy's plans. Why would he willingly cut that off? Now, he said exactly this to Snape. He put this out there, and Snape hand-waved him. And now, after that exchange, that internal logic for Harry has become another private guide, a quiet justification that gives way to pretense even among his closest friends. The words of urgency from Dumbledore, Lupin, and Sirius regarding his occlumency, now part of a growing chorus that he's ignoring or pushing aside guiltily under the cover of deception. You are trying to block your mind, aren't you? Said Hermione, looking beatily at Harry. Yeah! <laughs> it's blocked. What are you talking about? You oh, are keeping going with your occlumency? Of course I am, said Harry, trying to sound as though this question was insulting, but not quite meeting her eyes. Yeah! Yeah! Blocking it. What are you talking about? Umbridge banned Harry from Quidditch for life! Effectively cutting him off from the most consistently fulfilling refuge that he has. Gryffindor is playing Ravenclaw, being in the season match, shouts to Luna with the Ravenclaw head. And Harry has to watch from the sidelines. Ron has newfound confidence. Nothing to lose now, is there? He says, barely seconds into the match. Hagrid summons Harry and Hermione. They ask him if it can wait until after the match, but that's his whole plan. It's got to be now while everyone's looking all the way, please. <laughs> he needs to use the match as cover. Something is up. His nose bleeding. His eyes are black. He looked utterly woebegone to the book. Of course, said Harry at once. Of course we'll come. This is touching. How many times have Hagrid and Harry been there for each other? They're doing it here again. When Hagrid says he just hopes Umbridge doesn't notice their departure, Harry says she's positioned with her entire inquisitorial squad, clearly bracing for trouble at the match. Yeah, we're in a bit of trouble. Hagrid says, give us more time. 
He leads them into the forest, which is never a good sign, guys. And he does so with urgency. Come on out quick before we're spotted. There's a 12-foot man walking into the forest. <laughs> you think anybody's going to notice? Ever since his return, Hagrid has carried with him not only grave injuries, but an air of mystery, which is a strange thing for Hagrid to be carrying. <laughs> now he's leading them towards some sort of clarity, but clearly at the cost of bringing them into his lie. Oh, and he's carrying a crossbow, which is yeah. slightly concerning. <laughs> They're going in deeper than the day he showed them the Thestrals. No arms needed, though, as he notes, the centers are now good and riled at him for foiling their attempt to kick friends to death, which Hagrid stopped. As they wend their way further and further into the forest, still absent any specificity from Hagrid regarding the nature of this excursion, Hagrid steps off the path. Quote, it occurred to him, Harry, that he had never managed to get this far into the forest without meeting some kind of creature. Their absence struck him as rather ominous. Finally, Hagrid stops to fill them in. He's about to get sacked. Umbridge thinks he put the Niffler in her office. I don't want to go, of course. But if it wasn't for, well, special circumstances, I'm about to explain to you. I leave right now before you got a chance to do it in front of the whole school like you do it. He'll be able to help Dumbledore, he says, and do useful work for the Order. Quote, his voice trembled and broke. As they comfort him, he regains his focus. I can't leave without, without telling someone, because I'll, I'll need you two to help me. And Ron, if he's willing. I love that. And Ron. <laughs> and I guess Ron. Ron was helpful with Norbert, you know? Got the, the bite and everything. Harry, uh, requiring no further detail, apparently, says, of course we'll help you. And Hagrid's gratitude is moving. He says, I knew you'd say yes, but I won't. Never forget. Harry's a fierce friend, loyal and unafraid to be so. But the next line, what do you want us to do, probably should have come before yep. the of course will help, not after. He has no idea what impossible deception he has just opted into. They walk on and eventually reach what Harry thinks is a massive mound of earth, sure to house some dreadful creature. He notices that the trees have all been pulled up around the mound. And Hermione says, Hagrid, who is he? Her wand is shaking in her hand. You told us none of them wanted to come, and then the mound of earth moves. From the book, it was not a mound at all. It was the curved back of what was clearly a giant, big baby grop. Hagrid insists that he's harmless. He just wants a chance to show people. Hermione's on the verge of tears. He's been hurting you all this time, hasn't he? That's why you've had all these injuries. He don't know his own strength. Now it's clicking the injuries, the two-month delay in getting home, the secrets, the lies. What could have possibly led Hagrid to make this choice? Not even his incomparable affection for dangerous creatures can make him want to keep a giant as a pet. And we learn that it, there's something much deeper going on here. They were all bullying him because he's so small, Hagrid says, sending Hermione further into stunned despair. And Hagrid has to stop the bullying. Had to because this mountain-sized creature is his brother. Aww. Well, half-brother. Turns out my mother took up with another giant when she left me dad. She went and had to grow up here. Subterfuge takes many forms in this span of chapters in the wider saga, but Hagrid trying to hide an actual, literal giant is a special kind of embodiment of the theme. We learn that he's been trying to teach Grop English since he and the runty, only 16 foot, oh yes, tiny, Hermione said with a kind of hysterical sarcasm. Absolutely minuscule. Ever since Grop parted from Madame Maxine on the return journey, Hagrid claims Grop's settling down nicely. What are those ropes for then, Harry asks. You have to keep him tied up, said Hermione faintly. Hagrid insists that the word 
Violent. I wouldn't say violent. It's a little strong. I would say more that he doesn't know his own strength. (laughs) That's how I would put it. This is, by the way, why there are no animals in this part of the forest and also why Friends was like, it's not working. Tell him to cut it out. And now Hagrid has brought Harry and Hermione into the deception in order to, quote, look after him after I'm gone. Which, again, Harry has already promised that they'll do. So what does that entail? Well, little G can get his own food, obviously, but he needs company. He needs a teacher. Harry looks at Grop, who, unlike Hagrid, doesn't just look like an overly large human. He looks like an actual giant because he is. Massive head, no neck, feet as large as sledges. Hagrid asks them to pop down once a week for a little chat and then wakes Grop up for an intro, which he does by poking him in the back from 10 feet away. Couldn't there have been a gentler way to do it than poke him in the spine with a stick? I think it's more like if you're trying to send the message to Harry and Hermione that Grop is fine to be around, you should be able to wake him from a closer distance than 10 feet away. Right. I also just kind of think like no matter your size, nobody wants to be awoken that way. That's true. We're awoken, period. Yeah. Like I'll meet your fucking friends later. I'm napping now. Hagger. <laughs> Hagrid says, all right, Groppy, which is right up there with sup, Figgy. Harry then observes that Grop's face looks like a gray full moon. Quote, it was as though the features had been hewn onto a great stone ball. Mm, Sounds hot. Harry's intro is, relatively speaking, pretty smooth. But Hermione's name is tough for, you know, a Bulgarian Quidditch star, an international sensation like Vic the Dick, not to mention a giant. Hagrid says, would you mind if he just called you Hermie? (laughs) Only it's a difficult name for him to remember. No, not at all, squeaked Hermione. What she does mind is Grop reaching out for her like she's a gurg head tumbling into the water. Bad boy, Groppy. Very bad boy. You don't grab. Ouch. (laughs) Startling sequence here. Time to wrap up, Hagrid says, bleeding freely from the nose that Grop just walloped. You've met him. And and now he'll know (laughs) you when you come back. Yeah. Well, (laughs) Hagrid really knows how to inspire confidence. They walk back in silence, Harry unable to think of a single thing to say. From the book, what on earth was going to happen when somebody found out that Hagrid had hidden Grop in the forest? Because things aren't bad enough, right? They come across the centaurs. Megorian, Bane, and a handful of others are there, and the mood is quite on the edge of murder. You ought not to have meddled, Hagrid, said Megorian. Our ways are not yours, nor are our laws. He says that they'll let Hagrid pass. Today, much like a, a mafia family, these centers, mm-hmm. we'll give you a pass today, Hagrid. You can get out of the, the forest today because we don't fuck with women and children. It's okay. <laughs> they let Hagrid pass today because he's with his young. And when Bane says they're not his, but students at the school who've, quote, probably already profited from the traitor frenzy's teachings, Magoria says that regardless, the slaughter of foals is a terrible crime and we do not <laughs> touch the innocent. The nature of this divide is eternal. Different groups of people will always believe in different things. The centaurs acted heinously in banishing and beating Frenze, but they're protecting their right to their own secrets. They're very, very covetous of their own culture. We can debate the methods and the merits, but the heart of the matter is unchanging. The divide remains, not only among the students at the school and the people in the wizarding world, but among types of beings as well. And no one seems to be able to bridge these divides when the chasm of customs grow ever wider to seed and despair bound to brew. And Quidditch despair seems bound to brew too. 
As they emerge from the clearing, they hear cheers and shouts. Throngs are exiting the pitch. The match is over. Harry and Hermione, twigs in hair, scratches on skin, rush off to try to blend in with the crowd and mask their secret sojourn into the forest. Hermione is frantic as they move, and when Harry says it may all be moot, Hagrid may not get the boot, she says, of course he's going to be chucked out, and to be perfectly honest, after what we've just seen, who can blame Umbridge? There was a nasty pause in which Harry glared at her, and her eyes filled slowly with tears. You didn't mean that, said Harry quietly. No, well, all right, I didn't, she said, wiping her eyes angrily. But why does he have to make life so difficult for himself, for us? It's a fair question. Really a fair question for all of them. Secrets breed pain for others as well as ourselves. But there's one salve, Weasley, who, in case you didn't know, is our king. The lyrics that they're hearing, they slowly realize, are different. Weasley can save anything. He Uh never leaves a single ring. The singers aren't in green and silver either. (laughs) It's a throng in red and gold, quote, bearing a solitary figure upon its many shoulders. A grop-sized stunner seems to have occurred at the match. No, said Hermione in a hushed voice. Yes, said Harry loudly. Harry, Hermione, yelled Ron, waving the silver Quidditch cup in the air and looking quite beside himself. We did it. We won. The battle is over. We have won. We won. (laughs) Chapter 31, Owls. On the lawn by the lake, Ron is reveling in the Gryffindor victory, his own victory, regaling his friends and anyone else who might be listening with the tales of his... Humbly speaking, incredible play, sweeping back his hair after each boast. The scene reminds Harry of a certain other tousle-haired Quidditch hero who once showed off for his friends in the same exact spot, James Potter. Ron's on-the-pitch heroics means he missed out on that trip to meet Grop. Harry and Hermione fill King Ron in on Hagrid's subterfuge and his indignation over them missing the match instantly becomes horror. He's lost his mind, Ron says. Yes, Hermione agrees, but... Say no, promise is a promise. So we must now help Hagrid with this wild scheme. That is just the price of admission when you're dealing with Ruby's Hagrid. Too true. With Al's imminent, everyone's studying hard, but Ernie wants to know how hard. Yeah. How many hours do you think you're doing a day, Ernie asks literally everyone, more or less than eight. They're prepping so hard, in fact, that resorting to illicit pick-me-ups has become the norm. The school is flooded with various dodgy products, which purport to help with concentration, mental acuity, tiredness, you name it. Muggles, we have aids of our own. These kids don't drink enough coffee. Sure. I mean, they maybe they do. I mean, show is like, hall, do you want to go like, get coffee? What about between classes? Yeah, like, can they just go, pay? I guess, you know, if you know to tickle the pair. The fifth and seventh years, they have some other stuff. Barufio's brain elixir. Mm. Would you like some of that right now? I would take some. Powdered dragon claw. Hermione's like... Yeah, that's just literal feces. Literal shit. (laughs) Doxydropics. (laughs) Flush. In Transfiguration, McGonagall gives the students their owl schedules, two weeks long, just like Binge, and warns them against any attempted deception. The most stringent anti-cheating charms have been applied to their papers, she tells them. Auto-answer quills? No, that's banned. Remember all? Sorry, Neville. He lost his anyway, of course. Cheating, cribbing, cuffs, self-correcting ink, you name it, it's outlawed. The results, she tells them, will reflect on Umbridge's new regime. Quote, and this is iconic. However, that is no reason not to do your very best. (laughs) (laughs) 
You have your own futures to think about. She is just the best. Wow. Harry is naturally nervous heading into his first owl exam, and when he walks into the Great Hall for this test, charms, he finds it set up just as he saw it in Snape's memory in the pensive. Harry begins, if the first question of his first owl is any indication, things are going to be just fine. A, give the incantation, and B, describe the wand movement required to make objects fly. Passage continues. Harry had a fleeting memory of a club soaring high into the air and landing loudly on the thick skull of a troll. Smiling slightly, he bent over the paper and began to write. I love that moment because it takes us right back to the beginning of Harry's journey. You know, we're right there with him in stone again, and we see like one of the first times that's that's when Hermione became their friend. That yeah. like moment seems compared to the things he's done since so insignificant, but it was this bonding agent, and it's just wonderful to be ported back to that. I love it. Harry's owl performances range from okay to great. He feels decent about transfiguration and herbology, and obviously he's very, 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 very good at anything having to do with defense against the dark arts, and he takes particular pleasure in performing the practical exam in front of Umbridge. That's great. Wows his examiner, Professor Tofty, with his Bogart banishing ability, then produces a full on-demand for only a bonus point. I feel like it's not easy to produce a full on-demand. Well, he did it in the first try. (laughs) Potions is hard, but Harry thinks he's got full marks for the Polyjuice question, at least. Care of Magical Creatures goes swimmingly as well as... Harry and Ron and Hermione would be crushed if they let Hagrid down. Divination is a mess, as one would expect. Stunner. Well, we're always going to fail that one, said Ron gloomily as they ascend the marble staircase. He had just made Harry feel rather better telling him how he told the examiner in detail about the ugly man with a ward on his nose and his crystal ball, only to look up and realize he had been describing his examiner's reflection. Fabulous. Then comes astronomy. At 11 p.m. atop the astronomy tower, Dementor duplicity aside, Umbridge and the Ministry's campaign against Dumbledore has mainly been waged out in the open. But after being outmaneuvered and very publicly dunked on by Dumbledore after the Trelawney sacking and Dumbledore's later escape, the new headmistress is not taking chances. Now, in the dead of night, in the midst of owls, she's making her long-awaited move against Hagrid. From atop the tower, Harry sees a shape he recognizes as Umbridge at the head of five other shadowy figures heading for Hagrid's hut. Harry can't keep his mind on his test. Then, a roar and a bang. From the book, Hagrid's door burst open, and by the light flooding out of the cabin, they saw him quite clearly, a massive figure roaring and brandishing his fists, surrounded by six people, all of whom, judging by the tiny threads of red light they were casting in his direction, seemed to be attempting to stun him. He's half giant, though, so the stunners are bouncing off of him like ping-pong balls, and this is an agonizing moment when Fang in an effort to defend Hagrid, is hit in the melee and falls. Hagrid, enraged, tosses the man responsible into the dark like a plaything, like a toy. Even Harry, Ron, and Hermione are frightened by this display. Quote, none of them had ever seen Hagrid in a real temper before. This is not common. But what choice does Hagrid have? They have come for him under cover of darkness to take him away in the night. And then, from the top rope... Minerva McGonagall emerges from the castle, sprinting toward the fight. How dare you? The figure shouted as she ran. How dare you? It's McGonagall, whispered Hermione. Leave him alone. Alone, I say, said Professor McGonagall's voice through the darkness. On what grounds are you attacking him? He has done nothing, nothing to warrant such. Her voice stops. What follows is a highly disturbing display, an example of the absolutely brutal lengths that Umbridge and Fudge are willing to go to. 
At least four stunners hit Professor McGonagall flush in the chest from the book. For a moment, she looked luminous. The force of this lifts her off the ground, and then she falls hard and, quote, moved no more. Any unbiased witness would find this shocking, as indeed Professor Tofty, who's giving the exam, does. Galloping gargoyles, not so much as a warning, outrageous behavior, he says. Hagrid, further enraged, screams, cowards, and he knocks out two of Umbridge's goons, scoops up Fang, and then flees into the darkness. Umbridge kind of got what she wanted here. Another Dumbledore supporter off the board, but not in custody, not in her grasp, not in the way she wanted. And by going about it through subterfuge, under, again, cover of darkness, she has highlighted her own weakness instead of displaying strength. She acted in cowardly fashion, and everyone saw anyway. Even in seeming defeat for them, Hagrid, on the run, McGonagall, gravely injured, their feats can only be seen as strengths. Inspirational, hair-raisingly courageous strengths. But exams must continue. Yeah. Imagine that. And without Dumbledore or Hagrid or McGonagall, their greatest protectors among them, there to insulate them from Umbridge's wrath, the students back in Gryffindor Tower openly discuss what transpired, and that is perhaps the only good thing about it. Harry's interview brought many over to his side. On the heels of Dumbledore's ouster, this blatant attack motivated by Umbridge's prejudice, among other things, makes it impossible for anyone to ignore what is happening. A coup, plain and simple, an authoritarian reign. He was too close to Dumbledore, Dean says of Hagrid, and he's right. This is... Oppression, relentless and unceasing, and they have to push back. Harry was, quote, so angry with Umbridge, he could not think of a punishment bad enough for her. But first, got to finish exams. Got to do it. History of magic, that dull and droning subject, which is mind-numbing to everyone except for us and Hermione, is our friend's final owl to sit. After the events of the recent days, the stresses of the year, with the finish line in sight, Harry finds it impossible to focus. His eyes blur as he's slowly hypnotized by his surroundings, Parvati's glistening hair, the whispering of quills on parchment, the heat of the room. The questions and answers swim murkily around in his head. He knows this, but he can't quite grasp it, and he puts his face in his hands, thinking hard, and then finds himself back in the corridor. Maybe it wasn't just the heat in the room. Maybe Voldemort was trying to get into your mind, Harry. He passes through the circular room, through the second door, past the lights and strange clicking noises. Running now, the third door swings open for him. He goes past the glass globes. Quote, his heart was beating very fast now. He was going to get there this time. He arrives at row 97, turns left down the aisle, where he finds a man crumpled before him. Quote, a black shape moving upon the floor like a wounded animal. Harry speaks with Voldemort's voice. Take it for me. Lift it down now. I cannot touch it, but you can. Harry Voldemort then casts Crucio on the figure who screams. And then, trembling with pain, his face bloodstained, he speaks. You'll have to kill me, whispered Sirius. Undoubtedly, I shall in the end, said the cold voice, but you will fetch it for me first, Black. You think you have felt pain thus far? Think again. We have hours ahead of us and nobody to hear you scream. The passage continues, but somebody screamed as Voldemort lowered his wand again. Somebody yelled and fell sideways off a hot desk onto the cold stone floor. Harry hit the ground and awoke, still yelling, his scar on fire as the Great Hall erupted all around him. Remember, like, the chill you got reading that for the first time? Yeah. As we'll come to realize over the course of the book's climax, this is 
brilliant deceit on the part of Voldemort. Yes. Our heroes, for a variety of very understandable reasons, have been loose and reckless. Sirius, gnawed by loneliness, has been appallingly incautious in seeking contact and company, and it will ultimately be his doom. Dumbledore, wary of his own power and ambition, is much more comfortable moving behind the scenes, and that tendency, combined with his appropriate fear of the mind link Voldemort shares with Harry, has caused him to cut himself off and shroud his moves now in complete secrecy. Harry, kept actively in the dark by Dumbledore, largely cut off from Sirius's emotional support, is clinging to his only source of information now, that link with Voldemort, like a lifeline. The Dark Lord, aware now of this connection with Harry, though crucially, as we'll learn in Deathly Hallows, not what it means, is using it to play his foes like a symphony. The effect of the link on Harry has been dramatic. We don't often think of a nemesis or an enemy in the context of a relationship. That's for friends and lovers and life partners, classmates, and so on. But Harry and Voldemort are in a relationship, and it's an intimate one. Yes. Even before we knew about the link, the moves of one influenced the other. Harry has been struggling against Voldemort's gathering strength since he arrived at Hogwarts. And the Dark Lord, for however much he hates Harry, needed him to fully return to life. And now their goals have quite subtly merged. Voldemort seeks something in the Department of Mysteries, which we will soon discover is the prophecy. And Harry wants desperately to discover what in the Department of Mysteries Voldemort wants. But only one person in this relationship is in control of the information, and that's Voldemort. Chapter 32. Mm -hmm. Out of the fire. Tofty tries to send Harry to the hospital wing for treatment, but Harry tries desperately to cover. It was a nightmare. I'm fine. Pressure of examinations, shouts the Toster, and thank God, because Harry can't afford a stay in the sick bay. He can't afford attention. What he just witnessed has cast him into an urgent panic, a reckless race to act, which, of course, is precisely what Voldemort was counting on. Harry does head to the hospital wing first, though, but not for a restorative nap. He tries to find McGonagall. This is painful. It's urgent, he tells Madame Pomfrey, and this is... A great moment for Harry because he just saw something absolutely horrifying, his godfather and Voldemort's grasp. And after a year of hand-waving Ron and Hermione's pleas that he report his visions, and more than a year of them telling him to talk to Dumbledore about stuff, that he should ask for help, that he should consult an adult, he knows after what he just saw that the moment to do so has come at last. But this is also a tragic moment for him because his awakening has come far too late. McGonagall has been transferred to St. Mungo's. Four stunning spells straight to the chest at her age, Madame Pomfrey says. It's a wonder they didn't kill her. Harry is stunned. Quote, terror was rising inside him. There was nobody left to tell. Dumbledore had gone. Hagrid had gone. But he had always expected Professor McGonagall to be there. Raspable and inflexible, perhaps, but always dependably, solidly present. This is a real precursor to Harry's internal monologue at Dumbledore's funeral when he thinks... I'm on my own. Nobody here to protect me anymore. Right here, nobody left to tell. What a helpless feeling. And he flees. Quote, the panic expanding inside him like poison gas. He must find Ron and Hermione. And when he does, launches right in. Voldemort's got serious, he tells them. But, but where? How? Said Hermione, whose face was white. Harry's voice and knees are shaking as he tells them that he knows exactly where. In the Department of Mysteries, Sirius is how Voldemort's trying to force Sirius to retrieve the weapon, how he's torturing him, how he's threatening to kill him. How are we going to get there, he asks, without any more pretense, and there is silence greeting these words. Get where, Ron stammers. 
Get to the Department of Mysteries so we can rescue Sirius, Harry said loudly. Quote, he could not understand why they were both gaping at him as though he was asking them something unreasonable. Now consider this. Ron and Hermione push Harry often, yes. They force him to check himself, yes. But minus Ron's petty jealousy in the lead-up to the Triwizard Tournament's first task, they've never really truly failed to be there for him in a moment of urgent need. Their reaction here, then, is highly notable, the exception that proves the rule. Harry, said Hermione in a rather frightened voice, er, how, how did Voldemort get into the Ministry of Magic without anybody realizing he was there? It's 5 p.m., she points out. Voldemort, if he entered the Ministry, would need to resort to extreme stealth and subterfuge. He waited an entire school year to lure Harry to him in the mm-hmm. graveyard rather than just having Barty Crouch Jr. snatch him literally in any moment. Voldemort is... Deeply flawed, as we have outlined and will continue to do so. But in terms of plotting, he is careful and deliberate. He's not just going to show up and reveal himself, especially to a group of highly powerful witches and wizards in the government who, by the way, are still stubbornly denying his return. And don't forget Sirius, she says. The only wizard alive more wanted than Voldemort. How'd he get into a building full of orders? Mm -hmm. I don't know, Voldemort using an invisibility cloak or something? Harry shot it. Anyway, the Department of Mysteries has always been completely empty. But whenever I've been, this is incredible shit from Harry. In his visions. Amazing. From Voldemort's point of view, there's never been anyone there. So obviously, guys, Hermione points this out. You've never been there, Harry, said Hermione quietly. You've dreamed about the place, that's all. And this is a very fraught moment because they're both right. Harry's retort that they aren't normal dreams is completely valid. He saw Mr. Weasley get attacked. He was forced to take Occlumency because the connection he shares with Voldemort is real. He can sense the Dark Lord's thoughts and moods. He's seen through his and Nagini's eyes. These are facts. Yet Hermione also has a point. Harry has never been in the Hall of Prophecy. This connection has warped him. Yes. He's losing track of what life he's really lived and what life he's experienced through Voldemort's eyes. He wants the same thing Voldemort wants at this point. That's alarming. What's more? Why, even if Sirius got restless and left 12 Grimmauld and got captured, would Voldemort want to use him? This is a key line of questioning, one which, if pursued with an open heart and mind, could lead to clarity. Sirius is a tool to get Harry. That's it. Ron's siding with Harry, which is immediate red flag. But remember what Dumbledore said about Neville all those years ago when he's earned the swing points in stone. It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to your enemies, but just as much to stand up to your friends. Yes. Hermione looks, quote, frightened and determined as she plows on. Okay, I've just got to say this. And then here comes the hammer. You, this isn't a criticism, Harry, but you do sort of, I mean, oh boy, don't you think you've got a bit of a a saving people thing? Which is... Not what you want to hear at that moment. He glared at her. And what's that supposed to mean, the saving people thing? Well, you, you. She looked more apprehensive than ever. I mean, last year, for instance, in the lake during the tournament, you shouldn't have. I mean, you didn't need to save the little Delacour girl. You got a bit carried away. A wave of hot, prickly anger swept Harry's body. How could she remind him of that blunder now? I mean, Hermione, right again. Yet again, she is right. And Harry does have (laughs) playing the hero thing. Here's the key. Voldemort knows it. I'm trying to say Voldemort knows you, Harry, Hermione continues. He took Ginny down into the Chamber of Secrets to lure you there, and that was when he was your good friend, Tom. It's the kind of thing he does. He knows you're the the sort of person who'd go to Sirius's aid. What if he's just trying to get you into the Department of Mist? And Harry cuts her off to say, it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter if that's the reason. No one from the Order is here. If they don't go, Sirius is dead. Hermione, as we will learn, has hit the nail on the snake-shaped head here. Voldemort planted this vision in Harry's mind, knowing it would lead Harry to run right into his clutches, at which point Voldemort's Death Eaters could make Harry retrieve the prophecy. Armed with Rookwood's intel in one of the visions that Harry saw, though he doesn't have a complete sense of what information Rookwood shared, we will learn Voldemort now knows that the prophecies can only be retrieved by those about whom they are made. And despite Harry's refusal to admit this, Hermione's right. Voldemort's not just traipsing into the ministry to grab it himself. He must act by stealth. Getting Harry to fetch it for him is the way to do that. And he knows. He knows that the way is to appeal to Harry's desire to protect the people he loves. It is a sick, twisted tragedy, playing on the source of Harry's heroism, turning one of his signature strengths into something that Harry will come to regret for his entire life. Harry actually roars in outrage, causing Hermione to step back in alarm. Empty his mind, rid himself of emotions, he's so wound up right now that one of his best friends is actually afraid to be in his presence. He is a very easy mark for Voldemort right now. Every back and forth, every passing minute, another maddening instant that further fattens him up for the slaughter. What do you think all the occlumency was for, he says. Why do you think Dumbledore wanted me prevented from seeing these things? Because they're real, Hermione. And she didn't have a problem with his saving people thing when he was rescuing her from the Dementors, he adds quite savagely, or saving Ron's sister from the Basilisk. Hermione, showing truly stunning fortitude here, presses on. She is not relenting. But Harry, you've just said it. He shouldn't have seen this at all, she notes. And if he'd studied occlumency like Dumbledore wanted, he wouldn't have. Even Sirius said that there was nothing more important than Harry learning to close his mind. Harry is manic with rage right now, shouting that there is no way he can ignore what he saw. And though it's very hard to blame him, he is completely missing her point. He's also forgetting what Snape told him about the worry that Voldemort, now aware of the passageway between them, would turn it against Harry and make him, in Harry's words, do things. This is exactly what Dumbledore wanted to guard against. But latching onto that, remembering that, would require cool logic, a clear mind, a steady heart, mastering himself, in other words, in a way that Harry has really never proven able to do. And again, that's partially to his credit. His heart, his fire... There would allow him to charge headfirst into danger to constantly prioritize the well-being of other people above himself. But those instincts also make him rash, foolish. What Snape cruelly but rightly labeled easy prey for the Dark Lord. In a way, Harry was right when he feared that he was the weapon. Voldemort wants a prophecy, yes, but he's using Harry to get it, weaponizing his deception and trickery and cunning to make the love in Harry's life the very thing that saved him as a baby, the very thing that Dumbledore will point to as his greatest strength, the very thing that will save him in the end, a means of destruction here. Ginny and Luna walk in. They heard Harry yelling and came to help. Well, you can't, said Harry shortly. You're being rather rude, you know, said Luna serenely. Amazing. Hermione, sensing that this might be her last chance to break through, begs Harry to let them help. Please, let's just check that Sirius isn't at home before we go charging off to London. If we find out he's not there, then I swear I won't try to stop you. I'll come. I'll do whatever it takes to try and save him. He is beyond impatient, though. I rate over a single second wasted. He believes that Sirius really is being tortured. And every delay is an other agonizing crucio session. Every moment brings his godfather closer to death. Umbridge's fire, Hermione says. 
It worked once. It can work again. Even though Hermione is trying to stop Harry from rushing off, this suggestion is a sign of her loyalty. She tried desperately to try to stop Harry from using Umbridge's fireplace before, saying he was gambling with Dumbledore's sacrifice, and now she's offering it up. Their own bit of subterfuge to try to find confirmation. She looked positively terrified at the thought as she suggests it, saying that Ginny and Luna can serve as lookouts. Ginny says they'll do it. And Luna, an all-time human being, asks, when you say serious, are you talking about stubby Boardman? <laughs> She's the best. They're off. Ron's tasked with luring Umbridge away using a lie about Peeves smashing up the Transfiguration Department. Luna and Ginny will warn people at each end of Umbridge's corridor that someone set off Garrett and gas. Keep folks away. Harry and Hermione will go under the cloak. Quote, and you can talk to Sirius. He's not there, Hermione, Harry shouts. Though, even in his rage, Harry recognizes that Hermione offering to join him in Umbridge's office in the Jaws of the Beast is a sign of true friendship. With everyone in their place, Harry and Hermione enter the office, which is empty. Good start. When Harry activates the flu network and connects to 12 Grimald Place, less of a good start. Quote, there was nobody there. He had expected this, yet was not prepared for the molten wave of dread and panic that seemed to burst through his stomach floor at the sight of the deserted room. Try to remember the dread that you felt in this moment, experiencing this for the first time through Harry's mm -hmm. eyes. Awful feeling. Everything that Hermione has said to this point, to Harry and thus to us, has actually tracked perfectly. But in this moment, it doesn't matter. We are all Harry. Hot currents of terror coursing over us and through us as we contemplate that empty room. Harry calls out, and Creature comes into view. Quote, he looked highly delighted about something, mm -hmm. though he seemed to have recently sustained a nasty injury to both hands, which were heavily bandaged. When Creature went missing over the holidays, Harry felt a pull in his gut. He knew something was up on some level, but he didn't push. He cared more about Sirius's feelings. He also knows that house elves have to punish themselves when they disobey their masters, but he's too ruled by his fear in this moment to parse what he's seeing. The bandages are a clue. They are a product of Creature's deception, the punishment he had to inflict on himself for, as we will soon learn, leaving 12 Grimald Place and plotting with Narcissa and the Malfoys for this very moment. Creature's information, as we will learn at book's end from Dumbledore, allowed Voldemort to, quote, realize that the one person whom you would go to any lengths to rescue was Sirius Black. Creature, we'll soon learn, had been instructed by the Malfoys to keep Sirius out of the kitchen knowing Harry would call. He injured Buckbeak, and when Harry appeared in the fire, terror in his eyes, Creature speaks the line he's been training for. Master has gone out, Harry Potter. Harry asks about Lupin, his mad-eye there, but Creature, not yet sworn to Harry's service, can lie. Nobody here but Creature. When Harry pushes, asking if Sirius has gone to the Department of Mysteries, Creature cackles, though Creature's redemption will in time emerge as one of the series' most stirring arcs, in this moment, he's not unlike Wormtail. Remember what Sirius said to Peter in the Shrieking Shack. It must have been the finest moment in your miserable life telling Voldemort you could hand him the Potter's creature's life. It's been miserable as well, certainly since Regulus and his mistress died. He loathes Sirius, who, while deeply beloved by us, was undeniably cruel to the elf. He was, as Dumbledore will tell Harry, what he has been made by wizards. And it's sickening to think of how Creature's lifelong adherence to these twisted ways primed him so perfectly for this moment. "'Tis part of house elves' enslavement, sir," Dobby said to Harry and Goblet. "'We keeps their secrets and our silence, sir. Creature knows how to withhold, knows how to operate in the shadows, because it's in his very nature, and it's a disgrace. 
Yet because of that, it must feel to him like one of the finest moments of his life when he turns back to Harry and says with rehearsed pretense, Master will not come back from the Department of Mysteries. Creature and his mistress are alone again. Wow, too right you are, Creature. As Harry starts to yell, he feels pain atop his head and begins to choke. He's being pulled back out of the fire and finds himself staring into Umbridge's face. Uh Uh-oh. She's dragging him by the hair, quote, now bending his neck back as far as it would go, as though she was going to slit his throat. This is frightening. Mm -hmm. She reveals that after the two nifflers, thanks, Lee. Way to go. She had stealth censoring spells placed around her doorway. She calls Harry, listen, we love our guy, but not wrongly, a, quote, foolish boy. Yep. As someone unseen takes his wand, he hears Hermione struggling too. They're surrounded. He tries to cover. I was just looking for my fireball. (gasps) Even in the most desperate moments, he's thinking about Quidditch. Yes. (laughs) Liar, she says. She saw him in the fire. Who was he talking to? No one, he says. Liar. He feels the hairs part from his scalp at this moment. Harry then sees Malfoy with his wand, and more Inquisitorial squad members enter with Ron, Ginny, Luna, and Neville? Where'd Neville sure. come from? They're all gagged. This whole display is vile. Neville, we will learn, tried to stop Warrington from taking Ginny. This, at least, is heartening. Our boy is finding his courage at last, even amid the horror of this moment. We can feel good about learning that. She asks if Harry was talking to Dumbledore or Hagrid, and she gets in a little gloating moment here about McGonagall. I hear she is too ill to talk to anyone. Her troop of goons laughs. From the book, Harry found he was so full of rage and hatred he was shaking. She says that Harry's leaving her no alternative and tells Draco to fetch Snape. And as she says this, realization dawns for Harry. From the book, he could not believe he had been so stupid as to forget it. He had thought that all the members of the Order, all those who could help him save Sirius, were gone. But he had been wrong. There was still a member of the Order of the Phoenix at Hogwarts, Snape. But this is the real cost of prejudice, of hatred. His disdain for Snape didn't just cause him to dismiss Snape as an ally. It removed him completely from his mind. We saw Dumbledore send a silver something to Hagrid and Goblet. We'll learn more about how members of the Order can communicate using Patronuses. Snape could have checked with Sirius in an instant. This isn't just on Harry. Neither Ron nor Hermione thought of Snape either. And Snape himself deserves ample blame. He's never done anything to earn this kind of trust and faith to become a source of comfort in a moment of need. It's really all Dumbledore's fault, to be 100%. Yeah. I mean, like, this child needs to learn a vital skill in order to keep the Dark Lord out of his mind. Who should I put in charge of that? How about the teacher that he hates? And who who hates him? him? Yeah. That will foster trust. I will stay out of it because I have things to do. Right. And I know that, Harry and Sirius just desperately want to be in communication with each other, and neither of them can be counted on to not be reckless. Let me not give them away how. Right. And it's also like there were many signs that this was coming. It's not like this has just happened. Sirius going to the train station, Harry and all the other shit he did. It's like, come on. Terrible. Yeah. Snape arrives, taking in the scene with, quote, an expression of complete indifference. Umbridge asked him for Veritas serum. And he says that she took his last bottle to interrogate Potter. We will learn later that this is a lie and that the supply he gave her was a fake. He is actually trying to help Harry, though Harry can't tell. Surely you did not use it all? Snape says to Umbridge, I told you that three drops would be sufficient. Umbridge flushed. She says, go make more. And he's like, all right, but it'll take a month. And she says, I can't wait that long. She found Harry talking in her fire to someone and needs to know who. Now, upon hearing that, Snape is actually interested. Though he covers 
by shit-talking Harry's disregard for the rules. Quote, his cold, dark eyes were boring into Harry's, who met his gaze unflinchingly, concentrating hard on what he had seen in his dream, willing Snape to read his mind to understand. Harry spent weeks failing to keep Snape out of his mind, and now in a moment of unrivaled need, he just wants the potions master to be able to come in to read his thoughts. Snape says, Unless you wish to poison Potter, and I assure you I would have the greatest sympathy with you if you did, I cannot help you. And then he and Harry look at each other again. Harry, quote, frantic to communicate without words. To convey, in other words, in secret, his thoughts. Umbridge then puts Snape on probation for being deliberately unhelpful, as she puts it. And as he bows ironically and leaves, Harry throws a Hail Mary, an overt public attempt to communicate, but still in a coded way. He's got Padfoot, he shouted. He's got Padfoot at the place where it's hidden. Man, I get a chill still reading this all these times later. Snape had stopped with his hand on Umbridge's door handle. And Umbridge is frantic when she hears this. What does it mean? Quote, Snape looked around at Harry. His face was inscrutable. Harry could not tell whether he had understood or not, but he did not dare speak more plainly in front of Umbridge. I have no idea, said Snape coldly. We will learn from Dumbledore at Book's End that Snape did in fact decipher this message, did in fact contact Sirius immediately and confirm that he was safe at Grimald Place, did in fact then alert other members of the Order of the Phoenix when Harry failed to return from his trip into the forest, did in fact ask Sirius to remain at headquarters, did in fact go search the forest for Harry. But Harry knows none of that now. He knows only that his last hope just walked away, sealing both Sirius's fate and his already unflinching belief that Snape never deserved his faith or his trust. As soon as Snape leaves, Umbridge begins muttering about no alternatives and last resorts, and we've seen already how the lengths that she'll go to, and now we're about to see the real lengths. This is an issue of ministry security. She's talking herself up into using the Cruciatus curse on Harry. I'm sure the minister will understand, and Hermione's appeal that this is illegal falls on deaf ears. Umbridge doesn't care about law and order. She just uses those as hollow legs on which to prop up her quest for power. She tortures students in detention. This woman sent dementors after two children, which she now freely admits. Somebody had to act by subterfuge, by whatever means that are necessary. This woman, evil incarnate, will act. And she opens her mouth to perform the spell. Hermione snaps into action. We'll have to tell her. Harry's horrified. But Hermione, we quickly realize, has a plan, an act of her own. Little Miss Question All is going to give us some answers. Come on then, girl. Come on now. Ron, Neville, and Ginny look horrified, but Harry notices that though Hermione's pretending to sob, there are no tears. He was trying to speak to Professor Dumbledore, and that's the only bait that they need. That absolutely hooks Umbridge. Yes, girl, she says. It's ready. What is? The, the weapon. And once again, Umbridge, like fudge, falls into a trap of her own making. All they have to do is use her own fears against her, mm-hmm. lead her into into a trap built on her own paranoia. And the master stroke, they don't understand what the weapon is, she says. Thus, they can't explain it. They just did what Dumbledore told them to do. Lead me to the weapon, Umbridge says. And Hermione, in an effort to keep the numbers down, plays into paranoia again. Let the Inquisitorial Squad come and see and use the weapon to destroy you. From the book, these words had a powerful impact on Umbridge. She looked around and Malfoy, idiot that he is, is grinning greedily. Hermione's hooked her. Lead on. Chapter 33, Fight and Flight. 
Hermione leads Harry and Umbridge into the forest. Hermione has been a dominant force throughout this book. Her foresight and planning laid the groundwork for the DA, her instincts, which in the past, earlier in their friendship, in their Hogwarts careers, had been overly careful. Pinpoint sharp now. As her objections to Harry's rescue non-plan show. Now we're about to see how quick she is on her feet. Harry, as per usual in this book, has no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> Isn't sure what Hermione has up her sleeve. He's staying a pace behind her because it would look weird if he didn't know right. where they were going. Umbridge, meanwhile, is so laser-focused on the idea of this weapon that she's blinded to everything else. She literally, in this case, can't see the forest or the trees. <laughs> It's hidden in Hagrid's hut, is it? Said Umbridge eagerly in Harry's ear. Of course not, said Hermione scathingly. Hagrid might have set it off accidentally. Yes, said Umbridge, whose excitement seemed to be mounting. Yes, he would have done, of course, the great half-breed oaf. Again, Hermione playing into her enemy's hands here. Where is it then, Umbridge asks. And now she's starting to sound a little uncertain. In there, of course, said Hermione, pointing into the dark trees. It had to be somewhere that students weren't going to find it accidentally, didn't it? And of course, for it to be well hidden, it must be deep inside the forest, right? Hermione, we realize, is leading Umbridge forward by the nose. Harry, still a little perplexed here because as they're in the forest, Hermione is leading them not toward Grop, but to what Harry knows is Aragog's path. Hermione doesn't know where Aragog's lair is. This is concerning. Wherever Hermione is taking them, whatever she is taking them to meet, she wants the target well aware of their approach. It's a bit further in, she calls loudly, and when Harry begs her to hush, she says softly, I want us heard. She walks them a long time into the forest, and finally an arrow whizzing past their heads announces that they have arrived. Who are you? Aha, it's Megorian the centaur. The centaurs, of course, are incredibly proud creatures, proud of their intelligence, of their independence, and of their culture. But they're on edge as of late because of Grop's intrusion into their realm, Firenze's defection, which they consider treason, and more generally, the clear heavenly signs that the decisive phase of the Wizarding War, which they very much want to stay out of, is imminent. Umbridge is an arrogant and closed-minded bigot who espouses both pure blood and human supremacy in all matters and hates, in her words, half-breeds. So Hermione has just led a match to gasoline. Now she and Harry just need to steer clear of the explosion. I am Dolores Umbridge, said Umbridge in a high-pitched, terrified voice, senior undersecretary to the Minister of Magic and headmistress and high inquisitor of Hogwarts. You are from the Ministry of Magic, said Begorian, as many of the centaurs in the surrounding circle shifted restlessly. That's right, said Umbridge in an even higher voice. So be very careful by the laws laid down by the Department of Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures. Any attack by half-breeds, such as yourself on a human... Whoops! Yeah! Eesh. Half-breeds, but don't stop there. Law 15b states clearly that any attack by a magical creature who is deemed to have near-human intelligence... Whoa, near-human. Okay, you get the picture. Surprising absolutely no one except Dolores Umbridge after significant goading, including the use of her wand to spring ropes on Megorian, the centaur's attack. Breaking Umbridge's wand and carrying her off to the darkness of the forest. Okay, part one of Hermione's plan, get rid of Umbridge, accomplished. Part two... Get out of this alive and intact without in any way degrading an entire species? Uh, no check mark there yet. The centaur's gaze falls on the students, cowering on the ground and then in their grasp. Centaurs, as Ronin reminds them, do not attack children. Right. 
Ah, here's the rub. They brought her here, Ronan, replied the centaur who had such a firm grip on Harry. And they are not so young. He is nearing manhood, this one. And Harry's like, thanks for noticing, my guy. I can produce a full. This one has a mortgage. (laughs) This one has a credit card, Megorian. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. Now... Hermione makes her first misstep. And listen, love Hermione, amazing book for Hermione, amazing series for Hermione. This is a bad one. Please, said Hermione breathlessly, please don't attack us. We don't think like her. We aren't Ministry of Magic employees. We only came in here because we hoped you'd drive her off for us. Tough. Yikes. One thing centaurs hate, and this is the reason that they violently exiled Ferenz, is even the implication that they might do the bidding of humans. In fact, Ferenz will come up in the course of this exchange. Quote, you see, Ronan, they already have the arrogance of their kind. Man, things seem to be going quite poorly here. Until, is that Big Baby Grop's music? Haga! <laughs> Quote, and this is of all the bad looks for our guy Harry, maybe the worst. Very, very tough. Harry did not know what Hagger meant. I'll give you zero <laughs> guesses. You fucking moron. God. Hey, God, what do you think Hagrid's half-brother giant is saying? He's saying Hagger. What could it mean? What could it mean? Anybody? <laughs> Hermione, what does History of Magic say about this? Oh, God. Incredible. Hermione naturally gets there first. Oh my God, he's looking for Hagrid. Also, Hermione, or should we say Hermie, seems to have made quite an impression on BBG here, who, we should note, much like Vic the Dick, also a physical being. These physical <laughs> beings really seem to take a shine to Hermie. Oh man, Hermie Grop shouts when he notices her, and then arrows fly toward our big baby, and huge droplets of blood coat Harry and Hermione, which will matter momentarily. Then Grop springs into action, his inadvertent and quite violent aid allowing Harry and Hermione to escape. Harry, however, isn't really all that appreciative of this really quite good plan. With his mind locked, just as Voldemort hoped, on rescuing Sirius, Harry is more concerned with the fact that they are now deep in the forest with no way but their feet to get back to the castle, which, once they arrive, there are still places that are very, very, very far away from London and the Ministry where Harry believes that they must go. Harry, you can do magic. Oh, my God. Just then, Ron, Ginny, and Neville and Luna arrive in the forest. What? Sure. This also, like, even at the time, read to me, like, JK being like, fuck, I got to get them all there, and my book is already the longest book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You think like Malfoy and Millicent Bolstrode are that hard to overcome? They escaped and they have their friends' wands, but they are collectively stumped about how to get to Sirius. Well, minus one. Well, we'll have to fly, won't we? Said Luna in the closest thing to a matter-of-fact voice Harry had ever heard her use. Harry's like, what is this we shit? What? You three aren't coming. What? Fly on what? Harry truly shockingly pulls the... You're too young card on Ginny, who notes rightly that she's three years older than he was, when the little baby boy saved the stone. (laughs) The most heart-wrenching appeal comes from Neville. Yes. We were all in the DA together, said Neville quietly. It was all supposed to be about fighting you-know-who, wasn't it? And this is the first chance we've had to do something real. 
Or was that all just a game or something? They want to help. We'll learn at the end of Prince that Neville and Luna answered the call because they still carried the DA coins with them daily, waiting, hoping for another call to action. This group has meant everything to them. It's their first real source of friendship and pride and a new kind of courage. They can't allow themselves to believe it was a lie. And of course, it was not. Harry led this group in a hidden room bound by a secret pledge to work in quiet to build a show of force together and also a show of force within. Harry's instinct so often is to go it alone, but the DA, as Hermione tried to tell him, was about learning that it doesn't always have to be that way. Harry was the leader, but Neville and Luna and Ginny really taught him. Sometimes the bravest thing is walking alone in the darkness, and sometimes it's letting someone else turn on the light. Harry isn't really thinking any of that right now. He very uncharitably thinks to himself that if he could have chosen any three members of the DA to join up with the court trio, it's it wouldn't bad. have been these three. Talk about beggars and choosers. He's like, wait, I have no way to get there, and now people want to go with me, but come on. Also, Ginny's like elite. What is he lumping Ginny in with that? Yeah, that's like, not great. All of it's rude. Luna was right. You're being quite rude, Harry. This, of course, will ultimately be another lesson for Harry. It's not always about flash and overt outward ability. It's about heart. Luna, Neville, they have that in abundance. And they also have something else, the ability to see Thestrals. That's what Luna meant when she said they'd fly. The winged horses drawn by the blood coating Harry and Hermione have approached them. Quote from Luna here, And Hagrid says they're very good at finding places their riders are looking for. Harry reaches out and strokes the nearest Thestral's neck. Quote, how could he ever have thought them ugly? Sometimes a moment of need can spark an awakening, and Harry, harping on death, consumed by the fear of loss, now sees these creatures so unfairly maligned for their association with death, for what they are, gifts, beautiful beings, rare and special and strong. They're misunderstood, just like Harry just like almost everyone standing there with him now. More Thestral's approach. Luna says, you two must really smell. (laughs) She's the best. They have their mounts. They have their plan. It's time to act without delay in the shadow of night. Quote, he had no excuses now. All right, he said angrily. Pick one and get on. Mal, the slaughter of foals is a terrible crime. We do not touch the innocent podcast, so please keep us safe. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the Forbidden Forest. Ah, yes, the Forbidden Forest. From the witch's lair in Hansel and Gretel to the other's scene of massacre in the prologue to A Game of Thrones— Heavily wooded forests frequently appear as among fiction's scariest locales. The dark or forbidden forest on Hogwarts ground is no different, as those two names imply. The first we hear of the forest is in Dumbledore's address at the Welcome Feast, way back in Sorcerer's Stone, when the headmaster warns, quote, the forest on the grounds is forbidden to all pupils, and Percy follows up by telling the first years, quote, the forest full of dangerous beasts. Everyone knows that. Percy's pompous, but he's right. There's a reason the forest is forbidden. But that doesn't stop Harry from journeying there in six out of the seven books. Even if on his first trip, he is nearly killed by a Quirldemort, and on his second, narrowly escapes death by giant spider. Mm -hmm. The Acromantulas might be the most terrifying creatures Harry encounters in the forbidden forest, but they're not alone on the frightening end of the spectrum, far from it. It's possible that some trolls live in the forest, and in Chamber of Secrets, Hagrid mentions some scary-sounding magical beings called blood-sucking bugbears. 
Our old friend Fluffy also lives there, according to a 2001 interview in which Rowling said, quote, you tend to find at Hogwarts that anything that's dangerous ends up in the forest. So that's where Fluffy was released. Mm -hmm. Good strategy there. Dumbledore. It's a wonder that non-magical beings like deer and foxes are able to survive in such a dangerous environment. But the forest is a welcoming home to animals in general, as it contains a number of different types of trees and undergrowth, as well as brooks that run through as a water source and some clearings amid the dense foliage. It's a democratic place, as the creatures seem to understand a natural division of land. And the most powerful, like Aragog's clan or Grop in Order of the Phoenix, carve wide areas for themselves to live and hunt. The one apparent exception to this rule is the centaurs, who roam wide throughout the forest and believe themselves more intelligent than any other being therein. Narrator, they are. The centaurs aren't the only intelligent inhabitants, though. A herd of dead, clever thestrals lives in the forest, as do unicorns. And starting in Harry's second year, an apparently brilliant Fort Anglia. Thanks, Ron. So, too, does a pack of abnormally smart wolves. Rowling writes on Pottermore that if two werewolves mate during a full moon, the resulting children will be, quote, wolf cubs, which resemble true wolves and everything except their abnormally high intelligence. Such a group was once set free in the Forbidden Forest with Dumbledore's permission, naturally. And they are why rumors abound about actual werewolves living in the woods, stories which Rowling writes, quote, none of the teachers or the gamekeeper has done much to dispel because keeping students out of the forest is, in their view, highly desirable. Man, now I'm thinking about intelligent wolves and ghosts. <laughs> Protect ghosts. Put the direwolves back in Game of Thrones. Come on. Because of its outsized importance in the books, the forest cinematic adaptation weaves an interesting tale as well. In an interview for the behind-the-scenes book Harry Potter, Magical Places from the Films, production designer Stuart Craig, who's worked on all nine films in the wider Potter canon describes how almost every forest scene was actually filmed on sets, not in real woods. And as the books progressed and Harry continued to press deeper into the forest, the movie's version evolved too. Quote, it's relatively recognizably normal on the outside, and the deeper you penetrate it, the bigger it gets indeed. Wow. <laughs> Craig says, more intimidating and mysterious, even the mist gets thicker. The tree roots grow. The atmosphere grows more intense, and the undergrowth grows thicker and ever more wild-looking, all climaxing in the final forest scene, when Harry strides toward his meeting with Voldemort and drops the resurrection stone on the forest floor. J.K.R. said in a 2007 interview that she thinks the stone will never be found because, quote, it was squashed into the ground by a centaur's hoof as the centaurs dashed to the aid of the Hogwarts fighters and thereafter became buried. Jason? Yeah! I was only wondering whether I could help. Well, you can't. I'm being rather rude, you know. <laughs> but let's plow on anyway, because it's time to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite additional insights and observations from Order Chapters 29 through 33, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. When Umbridge says this boy has as much chance of becoming an Auror as Dumbledore has of ever returning to the school, it's worth noting that both of those things actually happen. Dumbledore will, of course, return. And Harry will not only become an Auror, but the head of the Auror office. Maybe Umbridge should have been a seer. Any other career other than being around, like, people? Also, in this exchange, McGonagall's comment about there maybe being a new minister soon also proves true. Goodbye, Corn Fudge. Hello, Rufus Scrimger. Scrimger, of course, will be dead by the time Harry becomes an Auror. Number two. 
from the book, Malfoy was leaning on the windowsill, smirking as he threw Harry's wand into the air one-handed and then caught it again. An amazing moment to consider in terms of wand lore and changing loyalty, given how Harry disarming Draco at Malfoy Manor will swing the entire war. Love wand lore. Number three, two creature notes here. Number one, quote, Sirius's brother was a Death Eater, wasn't he? Maybe he told Sirius the secret of how to get the weapon. Well, not Sirius, no, but creature? Kind of? In the cave with the Horcrux? Number two, I'm warning you, said Harry, fully aware that his scope for inflicting punishment upon creature was almost non-existent in this position. Well, the result of this trickery from creature means that Harry will soon be able to give creature orders. Though, of course, he shouldn't. Put on your spew badges. That's right. Number four, more half-blood prince potions foreshadowing with Snape ignoring him in class. Following their row, Harry's, quote, pleased to find that when left well alone, he was able to concoct an invigoration draft quite easily. Indeed. Also, during his owl, he's, quote, much more relaxed than he usually was without Snape looving over him. And in his career advice session, we get this line from McGonagall. And I must tell you that Professor Snape absolutely refuses to take students who get anything other than outstanding in their owls. Well, that may be so, but it won't matter. Here comes Slughorn. Can't wait. My guy, Sluggy. Should we bring Crystallized Pineapple in here with us when we talk about yeah. him for the first time? I Let's do it. I love Sluggy. Number five. Ron says, did you see the look on Chang's face when Ginny got the snitch right out from under her nose? This is obviously fabulous Ginny Cho Harry love triangle foreshadowing here. And the symbolism at play in which Harry himself is represented by the snitch is perfect. Number six from the book. I mean, James didn't take Snape on dates with her and jinx him in front of her, did he? Some amazing love triangle foreshadowing here with that line. That would have been a tough dinner party. Not great. And a little bit more about love here, number seven. What do you think about this? Hermione demanded of Ron, and Harry was reminded irresistibly of the MILF, as we always are, irresistibly of Mrs. Weasley appealing to her husband during Harry's first dinner in Grimald Place. This is great heavy marriage foreshadowing for Ron and Hermione. And more than that, in general, it is specifically foreshadowing the Ron is Arthur, Hermione is Molly marital dynamic that we will see in the 19 years later Mm -hmm. epilogue when Ron assumes the role of the guy who's goofy about muggle things, saying, Hermione didn't believe I could pass a muggle driving test, did you? And then saying to Harry, as a matter of fact, I did confund him, while Hermione is the no-nonsense parent, just like Molly. Mal, you're raving. Just ask today's champion. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Minerva McGonagall. Just an incredible showing for our girl. We got to say first that we need to give proper credit to Fred and George for their iconic all-time legendary exit. This was one of the tougher House Cup debates we had because we love that moment for Fred and George so much. But ultimately, the volume in this stretch of chapters is just incredible. She is incredible. How about the way... She closes her eyes to give her strength a number just coughing during the consultation. And she's like, may I offer you a cough drop, Dolores? And the competent teacher line. Also, the, I will assist you to become an orf. It is the last thing I do. If I have to coach you nightly, I will make sure you achieve the required results. She's the best. Yeah. And the moment with Peeves, small and subtle, but really so telling. She is ready to shift with the changing tide. She will do whatever is necessary to honor Dumbledore and to protect 
Hogwarts. Pre-owls. However, there is no reason not to do your best. You have your own futures to think about, she says. So many zingers from her. Also, she shows incomparable courage when she runs out after Umbridge and the five armed agents. We know Dolish is there, so presumably these are all highly qualified ministry officials, maybe even orders, all of them. And McGonagall's just like, I'm coming for you. She is a warrior. She takes four stunners in her chest and she survives. Also, the respect of her peers. How about this from Madame Pomfrey? As if one of them could have stunned Minerva McGonagall face on by daylight. Cowardice! That's what it was. Despicable cowardice. If I wasn't worried what would happen to you students without me, I'd resign in protest. Paycheck is good, too. McG, just incredible, crushing it. Well, friends, special discounts to binge mode listeners who swear they're going to use our products to get rid of this old bat. Basically, and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, have already set up their own portable swamp. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again tomorrow. We'll be discussing Order, chapters 34 through 36. Until then, remember, give her hell from us peeves. And what about these? They're young, you know, we don't, uh, we don't attack foals. They brought it here, Ronan, I'm telling you, and this one is not uh, quite so young looking. Get your hands off me. I'm telling you, this one, uh, this one looks like he's got a mortgage, Ronan. I don't know. You got a phone, kid? You got a, you got a debit card at least? You got a credit card? Let me ask you something. You get credit card ads in the mail? Yeah, he's grown up, Ronan, this fucking guy. He's a grown man. Let's stomp this fucking kid.